Wow. You know, I think in television, this is a symbol of keeping it going. So I was just over there. Just, just keep going. Uh, we, don't, we don't need to. Wow, thank you so much, man, for your testimony. Not here only, Sebastian, but uh, in the school that you live uh, and, and, and the, in your world. Uh, golly, I, I can't help but to be moved in thinking when I was a junior in high school. I'll just say it was quite different than Sebastian. Uh, uh, but it was uh, the love of Christ that drew me and as well. So thank you. It, it brings us to a very appropriate statement by the Apostle Paul that he made in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 16. He's describing who he is in certain ways. This would have been at the top of his resume. Paul, who had grown up in the Jewish faith, uh, who respected the, the law of, of the Old Testament, as we call it, uh, the Hebrew Scriptures, he had an encounter with Jesus Christ. And that encounter was not just a matter of switching a mental uh, belief uh, to just change the, the structure of his thinking. It was a life change. This is the, one of the differences, one of the primary differences of Jesus Christ. That Christ came to us on this planet so that we would be able to have hope and purpose that our sin, which was inescapable, would have been absorbed by him, his body on the cross, and that he would raise from the dead on the third day so that he would have the positioning the power to give to us life. We spoke about this last week. In the Greek, it's called zoe. It's not, it's not bios, our physical life, but our spiritual life, that igniting of new life within us. Christ does this for us. Christ did this for the Apostle Paul. And Paul, the, the Apostle Paul then became a champion for the gospel, the good news that Jesus came to this earth to change lives, to save lives. And so in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 16, like Sebastian, the apostle Paul understood his purpose here on earth. And he says, I am put here for the defense of the gospel. That means that he was put here to take position about the gospel, about who Jesus Christ was, about what he has done what he can do, what he will do, who he is, who he will be, the future of the world. This is a worldview. In other words, Paul is saying, this is my worldview, that Christ is the Savior of the world, the long-awaited Messiah. And so this past week, I was listening to one of the greatest apologetics here on this planet, Ravi Zacharias. And Ravi Zacharias was going into the defense of the gospel and of our faith. And in this, he began to describe the, the increasing attack on the Christian culture and the Christian world and Christians in general. Now, as I say this, uh, I also want to be uh, honorable to those of other faiths. Christianity is not the only faith that's being uh, persecuted. 
Unfortunately, uh, there, uh, if you look at history, uh, Christianity was, was a, ha- has history of those who were persecuting. However, I would say that even during times of the Crusades, uh, I question whether they were true believers of Christ, to be honest with you. Because in, in the, during the Crusades, there were, there were movements of true believers who loved Christ, who, would, who were not on the attack. And so you have to understand when, when there are bad raps, you have to understand uh, true, tr- true believers of, of, of faith. I believe this is true for every religion. And, and when you look at uh, history around the world and even current times around the world, uh, interview our, our Jewish friends and talk about persecution and the history of persecution. And uh, they deeply understand, profoundly understand that, that phenomenon. So Christianity is not the only, the only faith that's being persecuted. However, I will say that in our day and age that it's, it's, so, it's, it's more of faith. It's more of taking a stand. It's more of being uh, uh, of tolerant of one another. But I'm finding that the, those that are tolerant are intolerant. I don't know if you experience the same thing. Those that cry out for tolerance are fine as long as you agree with them, but it's not tolerance. (laughs) Ravi Zacharias pointed out in particular to the Christian faith that the persecution comes in three different areas, force, scorn, and scheming. Since A.D. 30, uh, roughly at the time of when Christ died, until A.D. 2000, so from 30 to 2000, there were 70. There have been 70 million Christians who have been killed for their faith. The stunning number is not the 70 million, but the stunning number is that in the 20th century alone, there were 45 million. So 45 million of those 70 million of Christians who died in uh, and since 30 AD, were, they died uh, in the 20th century. And, and for some of us, that's our lifetime. I was born in, in the 1950s. Reading a Newsweek article written by a Somalian atheist, she writes these words, a wholly different kind of war is underway. An unrecognized battle costing thousands of lives. Christians are being killed because of their religion. It is a rising genocide that ought to provoke global alarm. Two weeks ago, I was in, the, in a car with two brothers, two Christian brothers uh, from the Middle East, and they spoke personally, not conceptually, not statistically, but personally, of those who had lost their lives, friends of theirs, pastors of theirs in uh, Iraq and and other places in the Middle East. This past week, I had a video call, someone who who, uh, we were having the conversation about implanting our discipleship tools in Nigeria. 350 churches burned to the ground, Christians uh, killed for their faith. So there's a persecution of of force, but I I don't want to sit there this morning on that because, quite frankly, we don't want to turn a blind eye to any faith that is being killed in the name of their right to their faith. 
But in America, this is not something that we face from a day-to-day experience. My brothers from uh, the Middle East, they, uh, one of them grew up in Lebanon, went through the, the Civil War there, and uh, he kept going into Baghdad after the U.S. invasion, kept going into Baghdad until he was on a hit list. <clears throat> and he said it was just a way of life for us. We got, you, you, you get used to bombs going off all, the, all over the place and buildings being blown up and people being killed, and it's just who you are. And he said, if you came over, you'd be scared to death, but we're no longer scared. Because he would say, he's not scared because of the environment that he lives in, but he would say with the Apostle Paul and Sebastian this morning, I'm here on the planet to be a defender of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I sat in a car with a 30-year-old in in that same car with this other Christian brother who had gone into Baghdad. He was the recipient of because he had been in Baghdad and this guy kept going in and sharing the gospel, sharing the gospel. This young young man and his father became pastors in in Iraq. Yes. But I I, I think what is a little closer to home is perhaps the scorn. The scorn in our our own country is becoming, uh, it's, it's on the increase. It reminds me of the book of Nehemiah where in the book of Nehemiah, God had called his people to rebuild that sacred property, that temple and and Jerusalem and the walls. And Nehemiah had gone back because he was being obedient to God. But of course, in that process, there there were those who were scorning. Sanballat and Tobias were two enemies of God's work, and they kept harassing them, harassing them, harassing them. We find an example of this in Nehemiah chapter 4 and verse 1, when Samballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and greatly incest. He, re- he ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish it in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life? from those heaps of rubble burned as they are because the the city laid in ruin. Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at Sambalat's side, who said, what are they building? Even if a fox climbed upon it, he would break down their walls of stone. In other words, it is not unusual, uncommon, historically, for those of faith to be ridiculed for their faith to be seen as weak, to be seen as purposeless, to be seen as those who are narrow-minded, out of touch, out of date. For those uh, that have kids, my kids are in school. They're, they're in middle school and they're in high school. We have chosen to put them in, in a public school system. And we understand the ups and the downs. We understand the value of, of private school and homeschool and public school. And we could get in a, a large discussion slash argument over that. <laughs> But I would say to you, we have made the choice to have our kids hopefully strong enough to live in that environment because every environment needs the word of God. Every environment needs a representative, an ambassador for Jesus. And we believe that they can be 13 or 14 or 16 or 17 because it is not a matter of convincing people of our religion. It is a matter of convincing human beings 
who are common sinners as we are, who cannot rescue ourselves, that there is a Savior who has come, who has loved us so deeply that he gave his life for us, and who can ignite life beyond bios, who can actually give us Zoe, who actually can give us life inside that is unimaginable if you don't have it. And so when we look at this this movement that we have of, of Christianity, we have to realize that we are going to have scorn. We're going to have those who make us feel narrow-minded, that when we speak of evolution versus creation, that there will be a, a sense of being silly because we believe that there is a being who created and designed this entire universe. And yet when you dig down enough, as, as Sebastian was saying, and you begin to look at the theory of evolution, it's a word that is now missing from our textbooks, the word theory. It is now uh, uh, seen and uh, asserted as if it's a reality and it's a theory. There are so many flaws in the theory of evolution. When you look at creation and creationism and all that, that, that the, the ingeniousness of a creator and the odds of all things coming together without a creator, it is stunningly, exponentially more sensible. It doesn't, as Sebastian says, it doesn't even require faith. If you were to take the time and understand and be able to explain to another individual, we're not narrow-minded or stupid for saying there's a designer of this entire universe. His name is Jesus Christ. But I would still say that there is a more subtle attack on Christianity. And that, that subtlety is certainly more than force, which is very overt, and scorning, which is very overt. And it's where we park today in our central uh, passage in the book of Jude. Jude is a very small book in the Old Testament. There's actually only one chapter, as we would say, in the, in the book of Jude. And Jude tells us something that is critical to, to, to our faith and the defense of our faith. Jude begins this letter in verse 3 by saying these words. Dear friends, although I was e very eager to write to you about the salvation that we share, I felt it imperative. I felt that I had to write. I had no choice but to write to you and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Now, let me hold up for a second. What, what Jude is saying to this group of believers, this local church, he's saying, man, I was, I was super jazzed to write to you about how happy I was that Christ has changed your life. I was super happy to have this dialogue and start, start the conversation and really get it going, but... I've heard some things, and I'm concerned to the point that it was imperative that I have to say what I have to say to you right now. I understand this language as a preacher. 
There are some times, I've told you, I, I'll repeat myself, there are some times as a, as a preacher of God's word that I am tempted, to be honest with you, to take an easier route. Because when you take an easier route, you have, from a human point of view, more people saying to you, wow, really great sermon. When you tell people what they want to hear, people like you more. So I'm going to take that route this morning. Just kidding. What? Somebody said something over here? Oh, great sermon. In addition to the great things of the, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, there are things that we all need to hear. This is the heart of Jude. He said, man, I'd love to talk to you about the, the joy of your salvation and the relationship that you have with God, but I, I find it imperative. And the reason, this is so beautiful in this moment, the reason that he finds it imperative is because he cares enough for the recipients of his letter. He cares about what's happening. He cares that it's slipping a little off course. He cares of how the trajectory of their souls and their hearts and their minds and then what that means to the world. You see, if we begin to diminish the truth of Christ and are ashamed of that, if we begin to be a pluralist in our thinking that it really doesn't matter which way there is to God, all roads lead to the same. If we begin to blur the lines between creation and uh, creationism and evolution, what happens to those who are in desperate need to know Christ? This is not about being right. It's not about having a checklist. It's not having, about a, having a better religion than other religions in the world. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with bringing life to people. You see, it makes a difference if there's a creator of this world. Because see, a creator of this world, then it, then it plays into how you'll make a decision about the sanctity of life. See, if there's no creator, sanctity of life becomes then a human decision. But if there's a creator who formed us in Psalm 139 in our mother's womb and who knew us before we took our first breath. It matters, just in, in a life way, not a religion way, but a life way. And so Jude cares enough to say, I felt that I had to write and to urge you to contend for the face, verse four. Why is this, Jude? Well, certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly, subtly slipped in among you. They are godless men, men, watch this, who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality. Anything goes. You ever heard it? It doesn't matter. You say, what? You said, what did Sebastian say? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Can you imagine a junior in high school talking to another junior in high school? What? Come on, dude, it's my body. Well, it's not what my creator says. See, since he made me, he owns me. And since he indwells me, it's sacred. You see, it makes a difference in real life 
even on a Friday night at 1030, about the decisions that you're going to make, who God is. It's not about being right or wrong. It's about life change. Apologetics is not let's get together and just have all these heady conversations. Apologetics matters at 1030 on a Friday night. That we change the grace of God and say, hey, it doesn't really matter. Do whatever you want. It's subtle. We change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. I don't have to tell you this morning that the lines of morality are getting blurred to the point that not even Photoshop can rescue them. There's a feature, I'm quite, I'm quite adept in Photoshop, by the way. That's why all my headshots look pretty nice. Do you know that you can blur something? And, you know, obviously in Photoshop, you can, you can blur it. There's a blur tool that's very uh, uh, popular. It's called Gaussian Blur. You can blur it, and then you can blur it, and you can blur it, and you can blur it, and you can blur it. And then if you save it as a picture, you can't unblur it. You have to put it back. Once you've closed it out, you can't unblur it. It's easy to blur things. It's hard to unblur them, isn't it? And so uh, it's kind of like this story I heard this week. There was a, a factory, and their production achievement was just diminishing over and over and over and over. And it was due to tardiness. When the, when the whistle blew and all the workers you know, were supposed to be there, there were only 50% of them on time. I thought, hey, they must be Christians, kind of like church. Sorry, I thought I slipped that in. That's because I care for you. That just came out. See, can I say that was God speaking? Can I just get away with that? <laughs> so their production is going down because half the people aren't there when the whistle blows. So they, you know, the upper management got together and they go, oh, man, we've got to figure this thing out. How do we get people here? And they did some mandates and they got angry and they got nice and they give incentives and blah, blah, blah. And nothing was working. And finally, they, they went to the workers. They had this big meeting of the entire factory and said, look, guys, our, the, our, you know, our production line and everything, our, what we're producing, achieving, it's going down. You know, what would you do? What can we do when the whistle blows? You know, we need everybody in the factory. And one guy in the back raised his hand. He said, hey, I got a great idea. Why don't the last person in, why don't they blow the whistle? Well, see, some of you are like, I don't get it. You'll, you'll get it. Well, that's because you were late. No. You'll get it on the way home. In other words, let's not adhere to the whistle. Let's move the whistle. Let's not move to the truth. Let's move the truth so everybody is friends on Facebook. Let's not say anything to our friends at, at Riverview, a high school, because they may not like us after we say it. I wonder if you, like Paul, would say, I am here to be a defender of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, Jude begins his letter in the very, his very opening of verse 1 by saying these words, 
Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called. And then in verse 3, he says, I felt that I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that once for all was entrusted to the saints. And the word contend, by the way, in, in the Greek means agonize earnestly. Man, there are certain things that I agonize for. Like, man, I got to get this deadline. I get pretty grouchy when I don't get my deadlines in. Just ask my wife. Ask my kids, my neighbors, my friends. <laughs> Paul saying, man, or Jude saying, man, you got to agonize earnestly over this. This is something of value to be fought for. And by the way, God has called you. You just didn't sign up. He's called you. I'll remind you that he loved you first before you loved him. I'll remind you that his, the days before you even took your first breath in, first, in Psalm 139, they were ordained that God has called you, that God is calling every single person on this planet. God is waiting for all to turn around, to, to put their heart and their faith into Jesus Christ. He's waiting because he's calling. He's calling today. He's calling right now. And so when God calls us and then we accept that call and say, I see it, this is, this, is, this is the life that I've been waiting for, then God says, now I've called you, but now I'm going to entrust to you this good news. And now that I've entrusted it to you, I want you to defend it with agony. How, how strong of a language is that? I'm so proud that we are that we've sent these, these kids, and it's just the beginning. These high schoolers, sorry, I use the word kids. These young adults, really. These young adults, to prepare them. You know why? Because God has entrusted us with them. So let's look at a statistic that ought to make us agonize a little bit. Do you know what percentage of college students, who Christian college students, who walk away from their faith is? After they sit in the class of subtly, the, the, the subtle uh, uh, um, embedding, stitching of philosophy, of atheism, of evolution, of all, the, uh, all these things, the percentage. Want to take a wild guess? 70%. Seven out of ten of every Christian going into the university system will walk away from their faith. I believe that the two greatest subtleties in our American culture, it's not scorn on Facebook, it's not deadly force in our country, they're two I believe two subtle, very subtle schemes that are taking place. Number one is pluralism. I think it is the fastest growing worldview in our country. What is pluralism? Just a review. It's all roads lead to God, that it doesn't matter. If you interview anyone of any faith, by the way, interview a Hindu, interview a Muslim, interview a, a, a person of Jewish faith, none of them would say, yeah, it just doesn't matter. All of us believe in a distinctiveness of our faith. We do as Christians. The second one, I believe, is more powerful. It's called normalization. There is a normalizing of behavior 
in our culture. It began, I believe, years and years ago. But it seems to increase, it being on the increase, that let's just take the, the relationship between a young man and a young woman. It is highly, the, the, a, a steep minority of those that hold to the biblical truth that marriage, uh, that physical relationship is reserved for a man and a woman in marriage. That is no longer even remotely close to the norm. Evolution is becoming the norm in our systems. I read, I'm reading books on technology and how it's making an effect on our families, our faith, our, our relationships. And in every single one of these, there are secular books, in every single one of these, evolution is not suggested, suggested, it is asserted. It has now become the norm of our reading. And that has happened in my lifetime. Just the boiling of the frog, little by little by little by little by little by little. You know what that's called? A scheme. It's called a scheme. This is the, these are the things where we need in our homes, not from a platform. This is easy, to be honest with you. Nobody's shooting at me yet. Nobody's kidnapping my family. No, nothing, nobody's scorning. You're very respectful, even if you're sitting there totally disagreeing, that's fine. But nobody's doing that. You know where my battle is? My battle is on uh, Reflections Parkway, where I live, with my own kids. When things come up on the TV, pause. Let's talk about that. I'm defending my faith to two little future ambassadors for Jesus. It matters. It matters what we're doing over the, across the building. It matters that we're investing in them. It matters because they represent the future of those who will defend the faith like the Apostle Paul. It matters that Sebastian, this young man, that somebody invested in him. Why? Because to be right? No, because I'll remind you, people desperately need a Savior to rescue them from the sin they can't rescue themselves from. So why is this critical? Number one, God has called us to be effective. In other words, I'm more afraid of Christians than I am anybody. I'm more afraid of us who are more willing to blur the lines. That if we don't hold the, if we're not holding the line, the, the faith, if we're if we're starting to hit God the button, the gosh and blur button, let me ask you a question. Tell me who else is going to be a defender for God. If we ourselves as Christians would say, well, yeah, creation of evolution, I mean, it just all came to being. It doesn't really matter. Well, sure it matters. And if we begin to blur the lines, we become less and less and less effective for God and his word. Secondly, eternity is at stake. Eternity plays for keeps. Eternity plays for keeps. There's no turning back. That's the reality. Do you remember the story that Jesus told of the rich man and, 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 and the, the, the poor, poor man, basically, the beggar? And, 
and uh, the rich man died. He begged to come back. Jesus, I'm sorry. It's too late, man. No turning back. But here's, here's kind of where I want to end. Here's the third reason. And this is deep. This is heavy. So, you know, put your soul cap on here. All the things that we're seeing, there's just some human nature involved. I understand that. People hating people, it's happened since the fall of Adam. It's happened right out, out of the chute with Cain and Abel. People hating people. People hating people of other religions. People, you know, killing one another, other religions. It's, it's absolutely godless. If a Christian killed someone else because of their faith, it's godless. It's, Christ is not in that. If a Muslim kills a, a, a Christian or a Jewish person, it, it's godless. God is not in that, okay? Never has been, by the way, in, 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 our, in our faith. But you say, that's just human, that's humanity. You know, we're selfish, we're broken, all that. True statement. People who post things on Facebook against other faiths, against other people, against people groups, all that. That's, it's, okay, humanity. We're, we're all broken, we're sinful, and all that. But I propose to you there's something deeper going on. And there's a power behind the visible that is at work. And that even the people who are hating don't realize that there's a power behind what's going on. I'll prove it. In Ephesians chapter 2, we were, Paul begins to tell us about our previous life. And that we were, be, we were being obedient and following the God of this, this world, the, uh, Satan. I didn't know that. I just having a good time. I, I snubbed my nose at God. I didn't know there was a power. I didn't know there was a darkness. I didn't know that there was a two kingdoms. I didn't know there was a civil war going on. We look at the things on the news and we think it's only on the surface, the human visible side of it. But see, the enemy is real and he's a schemer. And there's this, this normalization that's happening. Don't think for just a second. It's just a bunch of smart educators sitting in a room talking about, hey, let's change up uh, the textbooks according to my beliefs. No, there's something greater that I would give in compassion say about them. They don't even realize there's something behind it. I don't think they're sitting in the room like, hey, let's do something satanic. I don't think they know it. Why? Because the God of this age has blinded those who are without Christ, including myself, before I came to Christ. I don't even know why I wasn't believing in God. I don't know why I was rejecting God. I can't, but now I do. Because the God of this age was blinding me. Watch this. In Jude chapter 4, in, in verse 4, he says this. For certain men whose condemnation was written long ago, have secretly slipped in. This is a, this is a, this is a, um, you know, a, a, a late at night Navy SEALs operation. This is a, hey, we're tiptoeing in. They sl secretly slipped in. They didn't come and say, just like to make an announcement, we're going to defy the faith of Christianity, and we're all here, we're sitting there on row seven, just wanted you guys to know. Judas saying, hey, no. They, they secret, there's something secret going on here. Okay, this is a heavy-duty passage in Scripture that we normally don't get to on a Sunday morning. So 
you have now graduated from Sunday school. <laughs> okay? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Paul says, don't let anyone deceive you. See, that sneaky, schemey stuff. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day, when Christ comes back, will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. He's referring to the Antichrist, okay? The man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. Now, how does he act? He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or worship, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. For, wow, there's that word again, the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. When Paul wrote the letter centuries ago, he's saying that power, that secret power, is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so, God, He's continuing to hold him back until he is taken out of the way. I don't know about you, but I'm reading that. Whoa! You know, sometimes there's a show about the CIA or Homeland Security and whatnot. I'm fascinated by that. I can't imagine, you know, sometimes they'll blame the president or, you know, Homeland Security director because they missed one. I'm like, guys, come on. They have a morning meeting every morning where there are threats that we know nothing about. To sit in that chair has got to be just mind-blowing. To look at the world and see how many secret things are going on. Well, see, God is sitting in a higher chair. And he's seeing the scheming. Don't you see? Like In certain parts of the country I've been, it's, legal, it's uh, uh, being uh, legalistic. In other words, let's just keep all these rules and it becomes super ineffective. I've been in parts of the world where Christians are crawling from here until the gas station across because they think that's going to bring them to God. You see, that's scheming. If people think they can come to God through that, then, then the enemy, the man of lawlessness, the spirit of that lawlessness is saying, well, let's go with that. In America, it is this normalization. Let's just boil the frog. Let's boil the frog just little by little by little by little. And if no one is holding the fort, then it just keeps going. God only knows what 20 years looks like. God only knows even when my middle schooler graduates from high school. If we don't defend the faith. You see, when I read these words, I'm struck to the core. Because when I go back, if we go back to the Thessalonians verse, the spirit of lawlessness, like we're not going to have a law, we're not going to have a rule, we're not going to have a plumb line. He opposes and exalts himself over everything that is called God. You see, when I say that the world was created by a spore or a big bang or whatever that theory might be. I have now put myself 
over the position of God. I'm smarter than God. I have now figured it out. I've now figured it out. Here's the key. Now, unless you walk out of this building and think we're throwing rocks at others, I say we throw a, rock, a few rocks at ourselves. <laughs> and I'll start with me. When I say to God, I'm going to operate on this day, and I'm not going to stop and pause and kneel before you because I'm busy. It's a form of lawlessness. I don't, I don't need that plumb line. See, Christ said, here's the plumb line. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Ah, you know, every time we go, ah, it's that spirit of like, I got it. When we say, I don't need, I'm in this particular pattern of sin and I am comfortable with that, whatever that might be, what we're saying to God is that I think I would rather choose lawlessness when I choose not to forgive. When Christ said, it's the greatest commandment I'm given to you to love one another. It's the new command. When I choose not to do that, what I've said is, uh, I think my way's better than God's. You see how that works? It's subtle, and I know it's hard to confess, but hey, I started, so we can take turns. <laughs> when I say, God, I'm going to keep all my money for myself, I'm not giving you back 10%. I'm not giving you back. I, I, I'm not going to do that. Nope. It, it's a form of like, mm, God, I'm putting myself above your heart. When I say... I know you've called us to make disciples, but, you know, I'm busy, and I'm this and that, and we, you know, we can, we're the masters of justification. What we're saying is, God, I, I think I got a, a different way, a better way of doing this. It's subtle, but there's a secret power to draw every human being away from God, Christian or non-Christian. And Jude nails the secret right from the beginning. Now, when you study who this guy Jude was, you'll get three different options. I won't go into them. But the, the greatest option is that he was a half-brother of Jesus. And the reason is that he says it right from the beginning. Uh, in verse 1, he says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. The brother of James was a half-brother of Jesus. Why do I say he was a half-brother? Jesus had no full brothers because his, he came from, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and to the Virgin Mary, so they had a different father. Christ's father was God the Father, and, and James's father was Joseph. And so most people, and I would adhere to this, that he was uh, the half-brother of Jesus, but what that means is he didn't grow up half-time with him. He grew up full-time with him. He played with Jesus. Let's, let's assume uh, my asser this assertion is right. He played with Jesus. They did kickball. They got in fights. They did the whole nine yards. He knew the ins and outs of Jesus. He'd seen them. And, and you know how hard it is. If you got, I got a brother. I have two brothers that I'm raising. You know how hard it is for the, to let the other one go first? 
I haven't seen it yet uh, in my own, but <laughs> waiting for it. Still investing. <laughs> but watch this. Jude says this. Let me tell you who I am. I could have started with, I am the half-brother of Jesus. But he says, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. This is what it comes down to. This is what apologetics comes down to. This is what faith comes down to. This is what everything comes down to. When God reveals to us in our heart that we are a sinner in need of, of, need of, of being rescued, it's a matter of me bowing down to the sovereignty. Put all arguments aside. Put all intellect aside. Put all faith background aside. It comes down to whether or not we're going to bow our knee to Jesus Christ, the Savior of this world. When I go to make a decision in my life, am I going to stop and pray? It comes down to where Christ is Lord or not. If I'm going to put myself above God, above Christ or below Christ, that's what it means for Christ to be Lord. Christ being Lord means he's Lord. He's the leader of every aspect and every minute of my day. And when I fail, I then submit when I write my check and I got my checkbook open, I submit, God, is this the offering you want me to give? When I make the decision whether or not to forgive, that is not my decision. It's Christ's decision in me and whether or not I'm going to bow my knee or not. Whether I speak up to my friends at high school, it doesn't become whether I know enough. Like Sebastian said, hey, I'll, I'll go and research that, that question. It doesn't matter. That's not the question, whether we know enough. None of us, including me, feel like we know enough, like Ravi Zacharias, that we're going to go conquer the world. And we can talk to an atheist, and all of a sudden, because of our brilliance, boy, they're going to say, whoa, I've seen the light. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything with me saying, Steve, comma, a servant of Jesus Christ. And that is the heart of, uh, of the scripture and the defender of the faith. Father, we're grateful for Jesus today. And for those of us whose lives have been changed, God, you challenge those who have been changed. You did not leave us just changed, God, but to be transformed and to not selfishly sequester the Zoe, the life that is in us. Father, we're going to end this time in this simple question. And I invite every person in, in this room to ask this. Have I bowed my knee to the creator of this universe and said, God, not my will, but yours be done? And with that question, Father, we will say that we need you and we love you and that you are the God of this universe and the Lord of our hearts. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen.